Please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading uh, from Jonah 3, as well as Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that it is that is in their hands, his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Turning to Matthew twelve thirty-eight through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, all. How's everybody doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. It's good to see you all this morning. And uh, before I jump into our text, I want to uh, add one more announcement. Sometimes uh, if there's an important announcement, they make me do it here at the beginning of the, uh, the sermon. So we already had two other announcements. Here's another one, a third one. But we're going to be sending out tomorrow... Uh, a, uh, an email survey that we'd love uh, all of you to do. So if you're uh, watching uh, here online, this includes you as well. And we are doing our best, as I've mentioned a number 
of weeks ago. We're doing our best to care for you all during this season of COVID-19 and being separated as a congregation. And so we wanna know how you are engaging with Calvary. So uh, are you participating in the live stream? Are you coming here regularly in the sanctuary? Maybe you're doing the outdoor service. Are you connected to small groups? Uh, maybe you're in Celebrate Recovery, whatever it might be, however you are connected with Calvary, we want to know that, and we want to, we've got a kind of a master list, as it were, of people that are filling out the welcome register, people that are in our database, and we're trying to figure out, are you, are you able to stay connected? How are you staying connected? And so uh, let me encourage you to fill that out. Look, look for the email uh, in your inboxes tomorrow and uh, fill that out in the next couple of days, if you would. And uh, if we don't hear from you, we're going to hunt you down and we'll make you fill out the email because uh, we just want to really make sure uh, that you're being cared for and that you're able to stay connected with what's happening at Calvary. So watch for that email tomorrow and fill that out. All right. Thank you for that. We're going to continue on now in our sermon series, uh, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. Last week, we looked at the story of Manasseh. And uh, we looked at his repentance and his restoration. And this week, we're going to continue on in a somewhat similar theme with the story of Jonah. Jonah, as probably many of us know, was an Israelite prophet. He was a prophet during the waning days of the Assyrian, uh, or of the northern kingdom, uh, during the days of the Assyrian empire. So the northern kingdom eventually falls to the Assyrian Empire. And so Jonah is the prophet to the northern kingdom during about 50 years prior to the Assyrians coming in and destroying the north. Jonah is one of those biblical characters that even if you've never been to church before, you've probably heard of him. It's just such a fantastical story. A man gets swallowed by a great fish and then he is spit back out three days later. So, you know, you hear the story once, you can't help uh, but remember it. And as I was preparing to preach this week, I was reading through the story a number of times, trying to decide uh, what, what to focus on uh, in the sermon. And I had uh, put in the, you know, the, the, the sermon series plan, Story of Jonah, but I hadn't figured out yet what I was going to say about Jonah. And there's so many things you can say about the story of Jonah, and I was kind of prayerfully trying to figure it out. My first thought was to read through the story of Jonah and to identify parallels between Jonah's life and our life and how God interacts with Jonah and then how God interacts with us and kind of draw out some of the implications there. And I think that's fine. A lot of uh, sermons on Jonah go in that direction. But as I was working through it and kind of prayerfully uh, trying to discern where to go, Jesus's use of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12, which has just been read for us, came to mind. And if you paid attention to how Jesus uses the story of Jonah, he compares himself to Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so too Jesus, he says, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then, of course, as Jesus's story goes on, just as Jonah was resurrected, as it were, out of the belly of the fish after three days and three nights, so too Jesus is resurrected out of the belly of the of the earth. So when Jesus picks up the Jonah story, he compares himself to Jonah and he compares his listeners to the Ninevites, which is interesting. Jesus is the new Jonah coming to preach the word of God to the Israelites, just like the old Jonah preached the word of God to the Ninevites. 
And Jesus is offering this sign of Jonah as a critique of the Israelites because the Israelites are not going to repent in the preaching of the new Jonah. But the Ninevites did repent in the preaching of Jonah, in the days of Jonah. So when Jesus reads the story of Jonah, he's holding out the Ninevites as the example that we should emulate. So I'm going to do the same pattern this morning. I'm going to follow Jesus's pattern, which is always a good, it's always a good idea to go like Jesus goes, right? Go do what he does. So as Jesus, he holds out the example of the Ninevites, we're going to script ourselves not into the place of Jonah, who preached God's message. We're going to script ourselves into the place of the Ninevites who received God's message. What was it about the Ninevites that enabled them to listen to the word of God when the Israelites were not able to. The Ninevites listened to the word of God. The Israelites did not listen to the word of God. Now, if you've been a Christian for like five minutes, you know how difficult it is to always connect the dots between hearing the word of God and doing the word of God. It's not always so neat and simple and clean, is it? Right? I mean, that's how it should be. We should hear the word of God and then hearing the word of God, we should do it. But, but we're always falling short. I mean, this happens often enough that we confess our sins as a congregation every Sunday, right? Because chances are some point throughout the week, inevitably, we have had a failure between hearing the word of God and doing the word of God. All right? And so we, we confess our sins because of this reality and we're never going to get it perfect but let's see if the Ninevites can help us make some progress on connecting the dots between message received and message obeyed. So towards that end, I want to look at this story here. I want to highlight a key element of the Ninevites' response that was vital in them getting from hearing the word of God to doing the word of God. And this key ingredient is humility. As I was preparing this sermon uh, this week, I kept trying to make the sermon about something else. I, I kept having a different focus and I would write a different focus and then I'm like, no, nah, it doesn't quite work. And, and I just even was complaining to, to Jill yesterday just about how difficult this sermon has been. I, I kept trying to go one direction. It just, I couldn't quite get it. And even this morning, normally I'm down here and I'm walking around trying to say hi, hi to you all. But even this morning, right before I was ready to come down, I had printed out my sermon. I'm like highlighting a few points for my notes. And, I, and I'm like, no, this still isn't right. And I cut out a whole section of the sermon. And the sermon is now fundamentally about humility. So what I have in my heart is that someone out here needs a sermon on humility. <laughs> I don't know who you are exactly, but someone needs this sermon uh, this morning. Because I kept trying to make it about humility and something else. But it's just like the Lord kept saying, no, it's just going to be about humility. So we're going to look at the Ninevites' humility this morning. And we're going to see how humility is the key to getting from the message given and heard to the message obeyed. All right, so the Ninevites' account begins in chapter 3. That's where we're going to focus our attention. But as we're making our way there... Let me just give a bit of context about the Ninevites. Most of us are familiar with the story of Jonah. We've probably heard that story numbers of times. 
but may not be as familiar with the Ninevites. So let me kind of give a little bit of a backdrop of the Ninevites, focus our attention uh, there. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria is the uh, great empire. It's the great power of the day in the ancient Near East. And the Assyrians were known particularly both then and then throughout the pages of history into the present, they were known for their cruelty and their violence. They were not, you, you didn't want to get conquered by the Assyrians. I mean, you didn't want to get conquered by anybody, but if you had to get conquered by somebody, just don't let it be the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a wicked and evil people. And in verse uh, one, chapter one, verse two, we're told that the evil of the Assyrians had risen up to heaven. It's like a stench that has come all the way up to heaven. And so God sends Jonah, a Jewish prophet, into the heart of the Assyrian Empire, to the capital city of Nineveh, to preach a message of judgment. The first two chapters of Jonah are all about Jonah getting to Nineveh, which is kind of where we focus a lot of our attention and probably where many of us are familiar with the story of Jonah. It's about how Jonah hated the Assyrians. Israel is probably a vassal state at this point of the Assyrian empire. So the Assyrians are probably putting heavy hands on their uh, vassal states, including uh, Israel. So, so Jonah hates the Assyrians. It's about how he runs away from God, how he, in trying to run away from God, encountered a terrible storm, was tossed into the sea, swallowed and spit up by a whale, and then how he eventually, even if reluctantly, makes his way to Nineveh to preach this message of judgment. But all of how Jonah got to Nineveh isn't as important if you're the Ninevites. If you're the Ninevites, you don't even know how Jonah got to Nineveh. You don't know any of that backstory. You just know that this guy shows up and he starts preaching judgment. So we're going to pick it up kind of from the perspective of the Ninevites when Jonah shows up and starts preaching judgment. So the Ninevites are rolling along in chapter 3. They're doing all of their evil things. And then out of the blue, an angry, brow-furrowed, fish-swallowed Jewish prophet shows up and he starts shouting a message of judgment at you. Right, so imagine you're the Ninevites. We read in verse 4 of chapter 3 that Jonah began to go throughout the city proclaiming 40 days and then Nineveh shall be overthrown. I kind of have this picture of Jonah like one of those angry street pre preachers, right, with the big cardboard sign that says like 40 days till the end of the world. Like, because that is pretty much what Jonah is doing. Right, he's walking through Nineveh, maybe he doesn't have a cardboard sign, but he's walking through Nineveh and he's shouting, I mean, at who? I don't know how it's working, right? But he's shouting as he walks through the city, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And lo and behold, in verse five, the Ninevites believe what Jonah is saying. So verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. We're not told why the Ninevites believe Jonah's preaching. I mean, they had any number of reasons not to believe what Jonah was saying. I mean, Jonah appears to them very much probably like a crazy man. He's a provincial from some minor part of their empire. He probably wasn't learned in all the cultural lore of the Assyrians. From a strictly human perspective, there was nothing about Jonah that explains their response to his message of judgment. Maybe they had heard Jonah's story about being swallowed by a whale. 
you know, perhaps that had kind of come out ahead of Jonah or maybe something about how Jonah proclaimed the message struck home. Maybe he was a really forceful speaker. Or maybe it was how he looked, you know, after three days and three nights in the belly of a fish with all the stomach acid and everything, he probably looked unsightly, right? I don't know what it is, but whatever the reason, God was clearly at work and the Ninevites believe the preaching of Jonah. And then we get to verse six, which is where I really want to focus our attention. Verse six tells us that when Jonah preached the word of God, the king of Nineveh got off his throne, removed his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes and called for a national fast. And then he proclaimed out into the whole city to do like he had done. So Jonah comes, he shows up, he preaches this message of judgment, kind of a ham-fisted message of judgment, really. And the whole city repents with sackcloth, ashes, and fasting. Now, sackcloth, ashes, and fasting were all signs in the ancient world of humility and contrition. The Ninevites not only believed God's message, they humbly received God's message with a deep admission of their brokenness and need. The king of Nineveh leads the way in this. He doesn't try to hide his distress. He doesn't try to cover up his brokenness. He quite literally wears his distress and brokenness on his sleeves. As I was reading this, I was reminded of the contrast between the king of Nineveh here in Jonah chapter 3 and the king of Israel, Jehoram, in 2 Kings chapter 6. In 2 Kings 6, the capital city of Israel is under siege. The siege has gone on for so long that the people are starving to death. So this is how it would work in the ancient world. You would put a city under siege and you try to starve them out. Right, so Israel is in the process of being starved out in their capital city. And King Jehoram, who was a proud and a wicked king, was walking along the city wall, looking at the ruin of his people. And he came upon two women who were so desperately hungry that they were arguing over eating a stillborn baby. And King Jehoram was so distressed by what he heard that he tore his robes. And when he did, the text tells us that the people saw sackcloth under his robes. Now, the text doesn't offer any more commentary there as to why he had sackcloth underneath his royal robes. And I did a bit of looking around in some of the books I have and commentaries, but I couldn't find anything specifically about that reality. But it's such a contrast to the king of Nineveh and his humility the king of Nineveh, in his distress, took off his royal robes and publicly clothed himself in sackcloth. There was no effort to save face or retain his dignity. He humbly wore his distress on his sleeve out in his open, out in the open. But the wicked king of Israel, apparently, in an effort to save face, hid his distress underneath his royal robes. It's as though he would admit his weakness privately, but he wouldn't admit his weakness publicly. He didn't want his subjects to see him in distress. And so he covered up his distress and his brokenness and his fear underneath his royal robe. 
The king of Nineveh teaches us that when it comes to repenting, our primary concern cannot be trying to save face or to cover up our shame or to keep our distress private just between us and God or maybe just between me and my therapist or just between me and my pastor. Over the past number of years, and perhaps this is true for some of you, it's certainly true for me in pastoral ministry. I counter a lot of different people going through a lot of different seasons, and I've had a number of friends or people that I've known over the years who have fallen into pretty significant patterns of sin. And when they've been found out, some of them thoroughly humbled themselves, just like the king of Nineveh. They made no effort to save face or to hide their sin. They just repented openly. But some of the other friends that I've had or people that I've known have tried to repent like the king of Israel, privately and undercover. They wanted to be free of their sin, but even more, they wanted to be thought well of by others. They wanted to save face and hang on to their dignity. The first group of friends and people that I've known, they've found their way to freedom. But so many in the second group did not. Because true repentance requires humility. And the opposite of humility is self-protection and saving face. So maybe some of you are in that spot this morning. You're trying to wear your sackcloth underneath your royal robes. You won't join an addiction recovery group because that would expose your sin to the public eye. I mean, what would people think if they knew that you were in a recovery group for addiction? Or perhaps you've joined an addiction recovery group, but you always refer to it discreetly as your small group. You don't want anyone to know you're actually in a support addiction recovery group. Or maybe you tell everyone you're taking a break from your couple's small group because life is so busy, but in reality, you're on the verge of a divorce. And this is why you're taking a break, because you don't want anyone to know. Or perhaps your fiscal indiscretions have led to your near financial collapse. And so you tell people you're downsizing to be a better steward of your resources which makes you sound all godly and pious rather than simply admitting that you were irresponsible with your money. There are hundreds of ways to try to save face. Do you want to move all the way into obedience? The Ninevites moved all the way into obedience because they weren't trying to save face. They just wore their shame and their need and their distress openly on their sleeve. Stop trying to hold on to your royal appearance. Stop trying to save face. I'm not saying you have to open every conversation by announcing your shame and brokenness. The Lord will give you wisdom about how to disclose and when to disclose your needs. But I am saying stop trying to self-protect. Stop trying to hang on to your dignity. That is the root of pride, and it will stand in the way of your obedience. Apostle James, 
The Apostle Peter both tell us that God actively opposes the proud. It's not just that the proud don't make progress. Do you know why they're not making progress? Because God is opposed to them. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He enables the humble to find their way to freedom. Maybe you need to start wearing your sackcloth out in the open this morning. Maybe you're not sure how to do that. I I don't want to oversimplify the realities and the complications of that because there's maybe other people involved in confessing your sin or bringing your shame out into the open. Maybe you don't know how to do that. You you, you need some counsel. It's fine. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of the other pastors. Talk to a trusted friend. God will make a way into the freedom that comes through humility. It may feel like death, probably will feel like death. But Jesus tells us that death is the pathway to life. So if you want to enter into the life that comes on the other side of humility, then walk the pathway of death. Embrace your shame. Put on your sackcloth. Now let me extend the insight here about humility beyond the issue just immediately of repentance. You might think that sackcloth, ashes, and fasting are exclusively about repentance. That's not exactly the case. As we look through the pages of the Bible, we see a number of episodes throughout the pages of Scripture where people put on sackcloth and they sit in the ashes and they uh, embrace a fast, but, but they're not repenting. So, for instance, in the book of Esther, during the days of captivity when Israel and Judah have been swept up into captivity. They're living in a foreign land. The righteous Mordecai, he's a a righteous Jewish man, he finds out that the Jewish people have been marked for slaughter. And when he finds out, he puts on sackcloth, he covers himself in ashes, and he calls for a fast. And he's not repenting. He's distressed, and he's in great need. And the same basic thing can be in the stories of Job and Daniel. Job and Daniel aren't repenting when they put on sackcloth and sit in the ashes. Sackcloth, ashes, and fasting were often connected to repentance, but most fundamentally, they were signs of humility and brokenness amidst deep need. So whether the deep need related to one's own sin or whether the deep need related to life circumstances or the sins of others done against you, it's always a sign of humility in the face of of deep need. So the context of our passage here in Nineveh's example is one of repentance, but there's a, there's a lesson here for all of us. So maybe this morning you don't come in needing to repent of something. It doesn't mean you don't need to be humble. We all need to be humble. If we want to get from hearing the message to doing the message, our posture needs to be one of open humility and a deep admission of our need. You're not going to humbly admit that you sit in a place of need, and we all sit in a place of need. If you're not going to admit that you humbly sit in a place of need, you're never going to move into a place of obedience. We all stand before God, finite and in need, not just because we've sinned and fallen short, but because we're creatures. God is the source of all light and life. We live by his breath. I mean, this was the introduction of humanity in Genesis chapter 2. 
is that we exist and breathe because he's breathed his breath into us. We don't live by our own breath. We live by his breath. That was before we sinned, right? That's how we navigate this world. We have nothing except what he gives to us. And without this posture of humility, we will never get from hearing his message to doing his message. Even if, now listen to this, even if we believe his message, we can believe the message of God, but not follow through with it because we lack humility. Think about the response of the Jewish religious leaders when Jesus rose from the dead. You can turn if you want to Matthew chapter 28. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew chapter 28 recounts Jesus's resurrection. And the remarkable response of the Jewish religious leaders who were responsible for putting Jesus on the cross and into the tomb. They had heard, we read at the end of Matthew 27, they had heard that Jesus had said that he was going to rise from the dead. And so after the Jewish religious leaders manipulate things to get Jesus crucified and killed, they go to Pilate and they say, listen, Pilate, Jesus has said he's going to rise from the dead. So will you give us a guard so that we can guard the tomb so that the disciples don't come, steal the body, and then run around saying that he rose from the dead? That'll be worse than if he just, we never killed him to begin with. So Pilate says, okay, take a guard and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So the, the, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the religious leaders, they go and they, they take a guard and they guard the tomb. This probably, now you think they're guarding it against uh, Jesus' disciples. There's at least 12 disciples plus other followers. So these aren't probably two guards. This is probably a, a significant body of guards, armed guards at the tomb. And then we get to Resurrection Sunday in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. So I'm going to read for us here and listen to what happens here. After the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So this great big stone in front of Jesus' tomb, and this angel comes, massive earthquake, rolls the stone back. Listen to this of this angel. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Okay, so we skip forward here to verse 11 because the guards kind of gather themselves up, right? I mean, they fallen over they were so scared of the angel and the earthquake they gather themselves up they likely if they were still conscious they've heard what the angel has said and they go back and they tell the chief priests all that had happened so verse 12 and when the chief priests had assembled with the elders and taken counsel they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep and if this comes to the governor's ears we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been circulated among the Jews to this day. The Jewish leaders don't say to the guards, you're telling a lie. What you're saying isn't true. That didn't really happen. Nor do they say, uh, you, must have, you must have been mistaken. Like, you think that's what happened, but it, it, something else happened. 
They don't say you're lying and they don't say you're wrong. They basically acknowledge the truth of Jesus's resurrection, but they refuse to yield. The great besetting sin of the Jewish religious leaders was pride. And even when they found out the truth about Christ, they refuse in their pride to submit. And the point is that pride doesn't necessarily stand in the way of believing the message of God. It stands in the way of obeying the message of God. So if you're finding it difficult to obey God, maybe it's some issue you're supposed to repent of, or maybe just in general, you find yourself always kind of bristling against God's you know, heavy hand, it seems, upon you, always trying to direct you. If you find it difficult to obey God, maybe it's time for you to put away your pride and instead put on sackcloth and cover yourself in ashes, if not literally, then metaphorically. Maybe your pride is standing in the way of a life of obedience. Let me encourage you to self-consciously listen to God with a deep awareness of your need. Indeed, let humility be the posture of your whole existence before God. Not just in the face of your sin, but in the face of your existence. As you move through this life, move through this life with a posture of humility, which is to say with the posture of an awareness of your need of God. Only when we place ourselves before God as creatures, before the creator, will we have the right posture for obedience. So Jesus contrasts the Ninevites who repented at the preaching of Jonah with the Israelites kind of exemplified in the religious leaders who refused to repent at the preaching of Jesus. And what do we learn from the Ninevites that separates the Ninevites from the Israelites? The Ninevites had humility and the Israelites of Jesus's day did not. We learn that when God speaks, we need to humble ourselves before him. I'm going to close with the example of Jesus, who is the consummate example of humility. Paul speaks of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. He says in verse 3, Do nothing for selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And Paul holds it out as kind of the pathway to blessing and peace within the church of Philippi, that if they would just live as they have been, if they would just live in a spirit of humility, true humility, how that would solve so many problems. Paul calls them to this humility, to consider others better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then Paul says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who had no reason to humble himself. If there was anyone who didn't have to humble themselves, it was Jesus. If there was any single human being who rightly stood at the top and had no reason to humble himself, 
No reason to put on sackcloth and ashes and fast. It was Jesus. But he comes and he enters into our world in a posture of humility, not asserting himself as Lord, but, but showing us that power humbles itself before the other and before God. And then Paul says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus comes into our world in a posture of humility, and God raises him up to be above every name that is given, every name that could be given, every throne, every power. Jesus stands above it all. And he shows us that the path to greatness is through the pain of humility. So I don't know who this message is for this morning. It's for all of us, but I think the Lord wanted to speak to someone this morning. Know that the path to greatness, the path to freedom, the path to blessing comes through humility, comes from putting on the sackcloth and the ashes, comes to fasting and being aware of our need. And then God raises us up into the freedom and the glory of Christ. So look to him in humility, be obedient, humble yourself. God will raise you up in due course. Amen. Father, thank you that you have given us the example of Christ, who is the one who leads us to blessing. And God, we, we want to get to blessing, but we don't want to pass through the paths of humility. We try every which way to get out of humility, but you keep just, keep just ushering us back into that place. It's the only way that we can get free of the self, and the self is what we need to get free of to enter into the glory of yourself. So God, I pray for all of us here as a congregation. I pray that you would help us, like the church in Philippi, like the Ninevites, to walk the path of humility to consider others better than ourselves, to want to see others lifted up. God, help us to trust you that as we lay ourselves low, that you will raise us up in due time. You will raise us up with Christ and seat us with him in the heavenly places. So God, help us to trust you enough to lay aside our pride, to follow Christ to the paths of humility. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.